This is Class, an official podcast of the Democratic Socialists of America National Political Education Committee. My name is Elton L.K. I've named this episode Non-Reformist Reforms because it focuses on that topic, and it is a live topic in DSA right now. But technically, this is part two of DSA's session called How Do We Get a New Constitution? from the Socialism 2022 conference in September. There were three panelists on the How Do We Get a New Constitution panel. The entire session was excellent. For the sake of clarity, this episode of class focuses on non-reformist reforms and includes a presentation by Amna Akbar primarily, as well as answers during the Q&A portion of the session from both Amna and Aziz Rana. Amna Akbar is an associate professor of law at Ohio State University. Aziz Rana is a professor of law at Cornell University. I introduced him in greater detail in the previous episode of class. Not included in either episode is an interesting talk by long-term DSA member David Duhalde about Chile and their attempt to replace their constitution. Perhaps we can address this topic in another episode soon. Non-reformist reforms are about getting out of the historic socialist deadlock between reform and revolution. DSA is far from resolved on this topic. Some members proudly identify as revolutionaries, rejecting anything that hints at reformism. Others have never taken socialist revolution seriously, dismissing it as a failed 20th century strategy. Austrian and French Marxist and sometimes called post-Marxist, André Gortz, tried to rethink this deadlock in his 1967 book, A Strategy for Labor, and his March 17, 1968 essay, Reform and Revolution. Gortz lived at a time when Marxists believed the socialist revolution was just around the corner. Remember that he didn't know it at the time, but Paris was just about to experience a revolutionary moment in the May of 1968, just a few months later. If you're not familiar with May of 68, I've included a link to the Wikipedia article in the show notes. Gores was tired of being told the revolution was just around the corner. Revolutionary Marxists were refraining from reforming capitalism because they feared it would weaken the socialist movement. Revolutionary Marxists were afraid that political compromises with a hegemonic capitalist class would cause workers to resign themselves to a more gentle capitalism and give off the appearance that the socialists were collaborating with the capitalists. But Gortz believed inaction, waiting for capitalism to destroy itself, was more demoralizing to the legitimacy of the socialist movement. Gortz argued that socialists needed to proactively join workers in struggle by fighting for non-reformist reforms. So let me give you some tangible examples, especially in our own context. Medicare for All would give workers health care so that their unions would have more space to negotiate, not for insurance, because they've already got that taken care of, but for political power. Free college would give workers more courage in their labor actions in the workplace because they would have more disposable income and less debt. The PRO Act would give greater protection to workers against retribution from their bosses 
and thus a better position from which to fight the bosses. And then, of course, a new, more democratic constitution, like Aziz discussed in the last episode, could go a long way towards strengthening working-class power. Gordes believed as workers won victories that reformed capitalism, the victories would build hope and excitement that the battle for socialism was winnable and workers would join their comrades in struggle. Building working-class power means not merely waiting until we have the numbers and the power to implement socialism, but having the power at all levels of society to limit what the ruling class can get away with. This gives you a little context about non-reformist reforms, though keep in mind that Amna in her lecture is more concerned with coming up with a conception of non-reformist reforms that is relevant for our current material conditions, not those of Paris in the 60s. teach at a law school and I'm trained as a lawyer. A lot of what I've been doing for the last several years is um, in some sense um, studying what people in this room are doing and what the broader left has been doing and engaging in all these sorts of campaigns and protest activity um, since Occupy onward. Um, And so typically I'm in rooms um, and I'm talking to people who are lawyers and law professors and more liberals. So this is um, humbling and a little intimidating for me to be speaking to Um, a room at the Socialism Conference. Um, And so please, um, I'd be eager to hear any feedback and talk back both in the Q&A and afterwards. Um, Okay. So Mia asked about this concept of non-reformist reforms um, and whether that's a way to think about um, the way forward. Um, As many of you know and are engaged with, um, the concept of the non-reformist reform is kind of a concept that is um, rooted in the socialist and broader left. Um, to develop a kind of alternative to liberal reformism, as Aziz was talking about. Um, It's about the demand itself, so what it is that you're demanding, but more importantly, about how you fight um, and to what ends, right? So if liberal reformers are often focused on tinkering and um, liberal reformism often entails buying into the precepts, the discourses, and the processes that um, formal legal and political process Involved. So, for example, testifying at a hearing, filing a lawsuit, um, lobbying in Congress, but refusing and delegitimizing the importance of protest and rebellious kind of activity from below, the building of autonomous organizations, and so on and so forth. Um, The non-reformist reform, then, is a concept that's designed not just to um, demand and envision an alternate horizon, a different world, socialism, abolition, democracy, so on and so forth, um, but also to entail a broader, more disruptive and more kind of um, uh, diverse and multiplicitous kind of set of strategies and tactics for transforming um, the world. Um, And so Andre Gores is often credited with or is credited with coming up with this term. But I think right now it's in such broad circulation across the broader left from the DSA and Jacobin um, to prison abolitionist organizing, um, indigenous organizing and so on and so forth that I kind of think we're in a moment where we should all be kind of thinking about what is the concept of the non-reformist reform that we need for today? Because when Gores was writing, he was talking about Um, Europe and France, and there were in different ways mature socialist, communist, and workers' movements and parties in a way that we don't have here. And so the question of how we engage in struggles, um, whether for non-reformist reforms or something else, in order to advance 
the power of the working class, to advance the power of democratic and self-governance and rule, and so on and so forth, requires assessing the conditions in which we are in, the balance of power in society, and to try to figure out from where we are at now, an assessment of this conjuncture, what are the strategic battles um, that we should be engaging in. Um, so it's worth saying, um, oh, right, the other thing worth saying is that often, um, and we're seeing this actually right now in a really interesting way, the demands that liberals make and the demands that leftists or socialists are making are not necessarily different. As I was saying, the difference is the horizon, how we fight for the fight. And so right now, partly because of the success of um, and the kind of rebellious nature of all the protests of the last decade, a lot of the demands the left is making, whether it's the socialist Green, green, socialist green New Deal that the DSA is making, whether it's campaigns for no new jails, whether it's um, uh, demands for single-payer health care, or cancel student debt. These are demands now that have become so central in the discourse and are being waged at the local, state, and federal level all over the country that you have liberals also echoing them and kind of chiming in in different ways, whether it's people who are like, okay, yeah, let's shut down this one jail or defund the police by 1%, but we're not really for fully defunding. Or yes, you know, um, when we call for the Green New Deal, we want a little bit of a transformation of the economy, but we're not really looking for worker um, power and control, that sort of thing. And so it's kind of important to kind of think about that. All right. One of the things that's, I think, basic and important to say about the non-reformist reform, in addition to what I already said, this is kind of how it's typically talked about, is that the basic concept in terms of the nature of the demand, it's something that's under, undermining the prevailing system, so capitalism, um, or um, in some people's account, uh, prison industrial um, complex, and building another one, so socialism, communism, um, uh, abolition, democracy, and then engaging in concrete material and ideological struggle that offers concrete things to people that makes a difference in their lives, but is also, like I was gesturing at before, strategic in the particular moment um, and contributing to the building of autonomous power um, and organization. Um, okay. One of the reasons why it's really important, as you all know, is precisely this idea of how do we link our longer term desire for revolutionary and transformative change um, under understanding that it's not simply about changing the terms um, in which we live or the laws or legal relations, but relations uh, more broadly and who's in charge of society. Um, so one of the things, so this, this panel is focused on the question of the constitution or that was the frame anyways, but I think one of the problems with thinking that way is if we concede that the terms of the debate, and I know people in this room probably wouldn't, but if we concede that the terms of the debate are the constitution or even law and legalism more broadly, we've lost already, right? Because the law pretends to set the rules by which society lives. Um, but as we all know, it's at best a partial, contradictory, conflicting set of rules that often kind of puts out a certain kind of face of how it's acting, projects one story of what's going on, um, but is often doing very different things. Okay, so if you look back at um, Gore's, or even if you look at Ruth Wilson Gilmore's writing and speaking, one of the things that's important to understand um, is that non-reformist reforms in a lot of these people's thinking and writing, um, and even in some of the campaigns we see today, is not simply about um, state power, but it's about uh, the power of workers over the economy more broadly and other contesting other modes of um, relationship and power. So Gilmore, for example, talks about um, this idea that seems to be the name of the conference about changing everything. She talks about building abolition ge geographies as part of her concept of non-reformist reform. In Gorz's writing, he talks about not just demands on the state, but demands on the economy and on capital. Um, and then this contemporary organization, the Red Nation, 
Um, they uh, talk about not simply that their concept of non-reformist reform is focused on how to return social wealth to those who produce it, but they also say, and I'm going to actually read this from their Red Deal, they say their concept of non-reformist reform will take, quote, many forms. And then the examples they create, and I think this is really important, is interesting, is grassroots indigenous seed bank networks where thousands of sustainable farmers share, trade, and feed their communities Successful runs for city council elections where left candidates implement a people's platform for climate and social justice at city and municipal levels and land back campaigns or tribal council resolutions that reject colonial water settlements by banding with other indigenous nations to blockade all government and corporate efforts to commodify water. So here, just like with Gores and Gilmore, they're making clear that their concept of the non-reformist reform is a broader array of um, different sorts of action than just kind of making demands on the state or seeking changes in the law. Okay, so the last thing I just want just to pick up um, on where Mie was kind of setting us up to some extent about um, the constitution in crisis and the way that liberals are kind of waking up to um, the problem with the Supreme Court in a particular way. Um, I think there is a kind of opening and an opportunity with that um, crisis of legitimacy. Um, but if you think about the Supreme Court and the question of the Constitution as kind of this concern about what you might think of as like high law, kind of the face of law um, in liberal society and in the New York Times and so on and so forth, I think it's an opportunity to link it to where we're actually seeing militancy and struggle happen all over the country, which is not in relation to the Supreme Court, but it's in relation to all the other forms of court and legalism that do violence and extract from poor working class black and brown communities all over the country. So whether you're talking about housing court, where, uh, where evictions happen, you're talking about criminal courts where people are being policed, fined and feed, incarcerated, immigration court where people are being deported, all of the courts have actually become a very central place where a lot of um, the mechanics of the contemporary state um, are, are extracting from um, and doing violence to working people and poor people all over the country. And that's where you see a lot of contestation of, um, of the political economic order, whether it's in the criminal courts in terms of bail funds and die-ins and the different kinds of protests we saw um, through the movement for Black Lives, Ferguson, um, uh, Minneapolis, and so on, whether it's the kind of work that Casey Tennant is doing um, in Kansas City to disrupt eviction courts and make sure that um, the judges there can't continue to evict um, people, whether it's um, the way that immigration, um, uh, immigrant justice activists have disrupted um, the ability of deportations to be affected. And so in an interesting way, and I haven't quite worked this out, but it feels to me a little bit like um, if one of the major wins of the civil rights movement was, was this kind of um, uh, legal equality win that we're now coming back, our movements now are kind of confronting the fact that the legal equality um, is not enough, liberal legal equality is not enough, and that what we're looking for is a fundamentally transformed society. And so to do that, you have to engage more than, um, you can't just engage with the courts, legislatures, and so on, on their own terms, but you have to kind of engage in this broader kind of realm of contestation from below and to feed, um, in some sense, where the militancy is already happening. So I think the courts are an important place, but not necessarily the Supreme Court or um, the Constitution. Thanks. One of the real problems with the liberal imagination around constitutions is the way in which it separates what we can think of as process and substance. So that they're rules, they're the rules of representative government, and those are supposed to be held constant, 
And instead, then there's like politics that takes place within those rules around policies, like, you know, the, the Obama's ACA when it comes to, to health care. And that separation then transforms this issue of the rules of the game essentially into a matter of kind of like technical expertise. So there are lawyers or political scientists or social scientists that have different models and they conceive of different potential fixes to the rules to make sure that those rules function adequately and then people operate within, within those terms. And I think one of the real kind of contributions of socialist thinking, especially in the early part of the 20th century, was to say, you cannot separate process and substance. That we actually live, we don't live in a world that distinguishes these two. We operate in worlds in which there's just a landscape of institutions, institutions of state, of economy, at all levels of, of government and society that impose a kind of pervasive status quo. And that in a way, the function of thinking about revolutionary or non-reformist reforms is like, well, what are the levers that we have at our disposal that can disrupt as many of these existing hierarchies uh, at once? And like, what kinds of levers would make it harder for the existing status quo to reproduce itself? And some of those might operate at the level of the actual written constitution. So for example, having a much simplified amendment process would, <laughs> would, would create a mechanism where our basic rules would be ones that we can continuously change and alter based on mass popular commitment. Some of them, though, might have nothing to do with, with the structure of the Constitution, but actually might operate at the local level, for instance, around broadly expanding access to public housing. That would have a transformative effect on the type of communities that people find themselves embedded in. And that all of these things should be thought of at, along the same continuum of struggle. And one of the worries that I have with, let's say, a, a kind of particular direction in left politics, totally understandably, is that precisely because of the dominance of a liberal imagination about what constitutions are, what constitutionalism consists in, is you sort of think of that, well, that's the stuff that liberals care about, that's about fixes. It's not really where like the working class lives. And I think a long tradition of a radical activist was to say, well, that's precisely part of the actual project of socialist change, which is how do you create an organized majority that understands that there isn't a difference between an eight hour day, for instance, or like, you know, really strong and genuine unionization and the fact that we have a system that basically disenfranchises large percentages of the population, that you need to actually have fundamental voting reform, that these things are, are in fact connected as part of transforming the framework. So I would call you know, um, non-reformist reforms, things that span the gamut from changing our voting system. Um, so uh, everything from what you think of as like multi-member districts in, in houses to eliminating felony disenfranchisement to ensuring that voting is based on residency rather than citizenship. So immigrants actually have voting power in this country to things uh, that we don't oftentimes think of as quote unquote constitutional, like the infrastructure of prison and police abolition. And that they're all part of the same, let's say, broad spectrum. On the specific thing about conventions, I personally, you know, I, I would love for us to inhabit a world like Chile in which one could actually significantly think about, can we replace this constitution with another? Not because it would be a panacea, 
but because the idea of the convention, this is why you know the Bogses, for example, were in, were interested in having a constitutional convention or a constitute an alternative constitution as part of their agenda setting, is that the idea of a wholly different constitution is a way to galvanize people around imagining a fundamentally different yeah. legal political system. The problem in the United States is we're not remotely there. And it's really telling that the biggest push for a convention right now is actually from the far right. And it's from the far right to basically entrench elements of the 18th century text that would undermine democracy. And that means that if, let's say, you just closed your eyes, opened them, and tomorrow there was a convention, because of the, the nature of our existing economic system, the array of forces, the amount of money groups like the Federalist Society have, chances are the constitutional order that would be replicated would be one per, you know, far worse than even the one that we have right now. So that means as a tactical matter, I think that the best way to think about a socialist constitutional politics is precisely by focusing on these specific reforms, and oftentimes these are reforms that there's liberal agreement with, and then pressing for those in a sustained way, not because they're fixes, but because they open up the potential for even more far-reaching reforms. And I should also say that the liberal uncertainty about what to do, like the idea that, like, so liberals want judicial reform, but they also think the Constitution is perfect, actually undermines the possibility of even these piecemeal reforms in the first place. And so a left politics that says this system has to be transcended, but in this moment, we can focus on particular levers, whether it's judicial reform, whether it's changes to the electoral system, whether it's the addition of DC as a, a state, um, that have a capacity to move us in a direction that power builds and then allows for even more far-reaching changes uh, down the line. I think that's unfortunately where we're currently placed. This is Class, an official podcast of the Democratic Socialists of America National Political Education Committee. My name is Elton LK. If you're inspired by anything we've been talking about, if you think the system is rigged and democracy is the solution, join DSA. Become a member. I've put a link in the show notes to DSA's website. If you're already a member of DSA, please share this episode with your local chapter. Class is intended to be a resource for chapters and members to articulate, apply, and share socialist theory with DSA and the wider working class. Also, remember to rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. This is an important way to get out the word about class. I'd like to thank Sean Larson from Haymarket Books for sharing the recordings from the Socialism Conference, Casey Sticker for sound engineering, theme music, and editing, and thanks to Palmer Conrad for administrative assistance.